Moon called Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, October 8, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology. Continuing the study of archaeology and the Old Testament, taking up the sojourn of Israel in Egypt and the data concerning the date of the Exodus. We should uh, start from question 240 and go to 259. It's under this book, page 140 and 152. Question 240. But uh, before we do that, I'll ask, are there questions about anything before that? We took up the great and uh, really tremendously important discoveries at Newsy and Mari on Wednesday. This is one of the, well, let's say, major breakthroughs in science of archaeology. Those two places, a tremendous amount of detail was found there of very great value. And I think we stopped about um, question 223 or 4. This deals with um, Mari and the um, some names that were found there. Abraham, the name Abraham found there a number of times with different spellings, various spellings, various forms of the name uh, Jacob, and uh, names similar to Laban and Joseph. This does not mean that um, the inscription or tablets that they found with these names on relates to Laban, the uh, generous hearted uncle of. Jacob that you read about in Genesis, but only that this was a common name that existed at that time. Now, uh, you see, the people of Israel in Jacob's lifetime had to go to Egypt on account of famine. That was the time of Joseph being in Egypt. He got kidnapped and sent there, and the rest of them went there to get food, intending only to stay uh, Limited length of time there. Well, famine was over. Actually, however, Miss Barrett, how long did it stay in Egypt? Yeah, three to four hundred, four hundred and some years it's read in the Bible. Uh, a little question about this before you start counting this. But anyway, a long time. And then, so this was different generations were born and died before they ever got out of Egypt again. And uh, this account of the people of Israel having been in Egypt is almost universally accepted, even by scholars that have a different attitude than ours to the Bible. There is too much evidence and too much imprint on the culture of the Israelites that bears the trademark of Egypt to question this. Um, some of the modern scholars that um, have a liberal point of view hold that not the whole 12 tribes were in Egypt, but the Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, were in Egypt. And um, this um, at least, but of course the Bible represents the entire connection having been there. Now, um, some of the evidence of this, the number of names in the Bible record of these people connected with Israel during the period they were in Egypt, the last part of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, some of these are certainly Egyptian names and uh, predominantly in the tribe of Levi, to which Moses belonged. Moses, Hophni, Phineas, Merari, those are all names with an Egyptian 
observation of background. Other facts about this, 226 now, the titles of Egyptian officials, the chief butler, the chief baker, uh, overseer of this house, and the um, sons of Jacob, when they got back, one of their brothers missing, remember Simeon had been left in the judge in Egypt, they got back, and uh, the father questioned them, why did you do this, why did you do that? And they said, the man, the man, asked this question, the man said this and said that. This, you might think, was just a descriptive phrase, but this is known from Egyptian records to be a title. We would refer to President Nixon as the man. <laughs> it would be an honorific title, and uh, so this is evidence of the stay of the Israelites in Egypt. Another is the prominence of dreams, that's a um, Egyptian feature too. More clear than this, the practice of embalming the dead. In Palestine, this was not done, and um, they usually buried the person who died the same day, or at latest, the first thing in the morning the next day. And there was no way of preserving the body. So the funeral or burial was conducted the same day, if they could, or right away afterwards. But in Egypt, they uh, took 40 days just to process the body for the funeral. The process of embalming, it was an elaborate affair. And uh, Joseph and Jacob were both embalmed by the Egyptians put in Genesis in our Bible physicians. In our country, the morticians do this. The physicians only deal with you while you're still alive. But it said the Egyptian physicians. A number of Canaanite place names in the eastern Nile Delta uh, accord with the idea that in the land of Goshen the Israelites lived for a long time. Sukkoth, that means Booth, Baal Zephon, something about Baal, Migdal means power, and um, these, the existence of these names proves that uh, this was long a place where people who spoke a Semitic language had lived. And at least it accords with the fact that the Israelites did or could have lived there. Now the Hyksos. Who were the Hyksos and what did they do? 228. <coughs> well, Mr. Johnson, who were the Hyksos? Yeah, now they were not really distant. They were foreigners. They came in from outside. Some Arabia somewhere, presumably, Eastern Desert, nomadic sort of people. And where they came from before that, nobody knows. But evidently, Semites, speaking a Semitic language, therefore distantly came to the Israelites. They attacked Egypt. The dates given for this are usually 1780 to 1546. A couple hundred and some years in there. They found the government of Egypt weak and corrupt. It was a pushover. They, they knocked out the um, government in the northern part of Egypt, or lower Egypt, and then ten years later did it again in the other end of Egypt, the southern part, or upper Egypt, and ruled Egypt, set themselves up to be the, the government of Egypt, the dynasty that ruled Egypt for roughly 225 years. And um, it is 
not possible absolutely to tie this in with data in the Bible as to when and what happened, but a key verse is in Exodus 1.8 that says, there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. Now, in the first place, that uh, probably doesn't mean merely uh, one king died and the next one took over. This probably means there was a revolution of sorts and a dynasty came to an end and a new dynasty took over. And when it says knew not Joseph, it probably doesn't mean he never heard of Joseph, but he did not recognize the the vested rights and privileges and special standing of Joseph's people in Egypt. And I heard a, of a Japanese official before World War II who said, we do not recognize Great Britain. Um, obviously, they, he didn't mean by that we, we never heard of it or don't believe there is such a country, but uh, we don't uh, recognize any claims or special standing that they have in this part of the uh, Far East. We don't recognize Great Britain. All right, a new king who knew not Joseph. This is stated in the first chapter of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 8. And right after this, it begins to tell about how the screws were tightened on the Israelites. So it is supposed, although not conclusively proved, that this new king was the, one of the 18th dynasty, the genuine, real McCoy Egyptian dynasty that replaced the Hyksos after the Hyksos were thrown out. And that this began then the, the oppression that the people of Israel had been favorably treated during the Hyksos period. Uh, these people were their distant relatives and fairly free from prejudice against them. And now they begin to come become um, under persecution and trouble. Exodus 1 7, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. The land was filled with them. This does not necessarily mean the entire land of Egypt from north to south, clear down to the edge of, the, let's say, the Sudan, but the land of Goshen, the part where the Israelites were living, was filled with them. And um, later, Pharaoh, the king there, said that the people of Israel had outnumbered the Egyptians. This, again, could hardly mean taking the total population of all parts of Egypt, but presumably means they outnumbered the Egyptians in the uh, general area where the Israelites were located and where they lived. Now, um, Moses was put in the Nile River and would have been completely Nilized, except for the alertness of his liquidators, you know, Except for the alertness of his older sister Miriam, the world's first recorded babysitter. And maybe she was a baby standard. But anyhow, uh, this is, uh, she was rescued, he was rescued by Pharaoh's guard. And uh, Unger points out some parallels to this in uh, other parts of the world. The story of Romulus and Remus in Rome, two babies that were abandoned and adopted by a female wolf and brought up this way, I wonder, well, Mr. Harris, does that strike you as just on the general probability of being likely true? <laughs> uh, strange things have happened in this world. I have heard of a child that got out among the apes in India and made out for a while and when discovered he was uh, Wild as any animal. Couldn't get him to sit up and stand up and run around on all fours and 
Guten Morgen. Pharaoh, except for the young lady that he married. 
was a real thoughtful marriage on his part and led to him becoming the pharaoh of Egypt. He was in line and he wasn't. And uh, McCartney's theory was that uh, the princess of Egypt was not merely doing this as a humanitarian good work to save this baby from drowning, although very likely she felt that way about it, but uh, instead adopting her as her, him as her son. And that therefore Moses was in line and could have become, if certain things had worked out in certain ways, the ruler of Egypt. And the New Testament suggested when it says, By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This is not a descriptive phrase, only it's a title. Son of Pharaoh's daughter is a, is a title. <clears throat> the heir apparent to the throne who has been adopted by a princess, son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. This would fit in with this idea. Now it's a, an intriguing idea. And if true, this would greatly heighten the sacrifice that Moses made when he, in obedience to God, cast in his lot with a uh, persecuted and despised slave people and, and uh, suffered not only with them, but I'm afraid he suffered from them for a good many years. Uh, I say it can't be proved, and it's unlikely that it ever will be proved, but uh, it's worth keeping in mind as an intriguing possibility. Now, um, a Nubian king in the family of Moses. Yeah, Mr. James. We're talking about what that is, Seven days. 
A real party. <laughs> now, it says she was smitten with leprosy for seven days. And Moses prayed for her. He said, Lord, please forgive her. Moses was very humble and meek. And the Lord said, all right, forgive her. But said, if her father had merely spit in her face, she ought to be ashamed seven days. That's what God said. He has to stay out the camp seven days. And everybody, of course, knew why they weren't moving any place and why she was outside the camp for seven days. And this was, uh, must have been a rather bitter pill for Miriam. And anyhow, this, this was, uh, God took the side of Moses and said Moses was within his right. He had no business to criticize Moses over this. Now, um, also, Aaron's grandson, Aaron, of course, Moses' brother, his grandson named Phineas, this is an Egyptian word, but it means the Nubian. So uh, this would um, show that there was a, there had been some intermarriages, and there was a African or Nubian strain in the family of Moses. Uh, there is a Jewish tradition, not in the Bible at all, that Moses, before he ever left Egypt, when he was still in good graces with the government of Egypt, had been a military commander and had commanded the Egyptian forces and fought a war against the Nubians at the far south end of Egypt. And uh, this uh, would tie in with this idea, of course. This is not in the Bible, it's in other Jewish literature, much later than the Bible. Now, again, the ten plagues have a strong Egyptian coloring. There was a plague of frogs, for example. A uh, country with uh, big river going smack through the middle of it is always going to have frogs. This time, how those frogs were what they practically had nothing else but for a while. And then the frogs became a problem. And when the frogs finally died, some of them went to the river and others died, and so they raked them up in big heaps. And a little comment in there that the land just wasn't exactly fragrant for a while. On account of these frogs. Now, the point of this is that the phenomena of these plagues, uh, if you leave out the death of the first one, maybe, are all things that happen in Egypt. And the, the supernatural element is in the timing of this. They come and go at the command of Moses. And the uh, terrific intensity far greater than ordinary. They had hailstorms in Egypt, but now they had hailstorms like they never had before in these plagues. I don't think the plague of darkness can be accounted for that way either. Although Velikovsky, who wrote Worlds in Collision, claims to explain it. I, I don't think he can. I don't know. And the plague of the death of the firstborn, some say this was a virus. Cause this. Let me tell you, it would be a smart virus with an IQ over 200 that could tell the difference between the firstborn and the secondborn in any family. So this is a pretty lame kind of an explanation. Now, um, any questions up to that point? Next thing, we um, see where we are here. Okay, well, we're still on the backlog, but the Red Sea does under say that Israel crossed the Red Sea. Well, it is called the Reed Sea. Now, this I should explain. A few years ago, students were bringing in newspaper clippings quite frantically. Some learned professors had said they'd made a great discovery that the Bible was wrong and Israel never crossed the Red Sea. They crossed the Sea of Reeds. Dr. Edward J. Young, a 
And the thing is, well, since the seminary wrote an article about it and said this is no new discovery, this has been known for a long, long time. The word is Yom Suf. It means Y-A-M capital H-U-P-H. Yom means sea and Suf means reed. Yom Suf or sea of reeds or the reed sea. And uh, this, however, is the ordinary name in the Bible for what is called the Red Sea on a modern map. So um, they crossed the Yom Suf. And the question is, what does that mean? And Dr. Young said, According to ancient usage, any body of water that was in contact with the Yamsuf could be called the Yamsuf. We wouldn't call New York Bay the Atlantic Ocean. But the Israelites would, in the time of Moses, if it was in water contact. Under holds that the Sea of Reeds was a was neither the, the Red Sea proper nor the Gulf of Suez, but a smaller and shallower lake further north than that, which, however, the Israelites never could have gotten past themselves without the, the almighty power of God to get them past it. Now, uh, it is possible also that this body of water north of, north of the Gulf of Suez was at that time in water contact with the Gulf of Suez. You know, the Suez Canal is a sea-level canal. There's no lock in it. And the whole terrain in that part of the world between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea has been repeatedly torn up by canal digging. Twice in ancient times, the Romans tried it and the Egyptians tried it. They both failed. They didn't get a canal through, but they did an awful lot of digging. But not to doubt it was malaria that killed so many people and got some mosquitoes. And then in modern times, about 100 years ago, a French engineering company was put through the modern, present-day Suez Canal. It's a sea-level canal, a difference in level between the Mediterranean and the the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean is a matter of instance. It's so flat. And uh, the whole area is sandy and flat. And this has been repeatedly dug up for canals. This is torn up the topography. Therefore, any attempt to pinpoint accurately places mentioned in the Bible narrative before that digging was done is probably going to be fruitless. However, it is possible that it was the Gulf of Suez that they crossed, and this could be called Neon Suf, just as much as the much wider part that was, was further south. Or it is possible that it was a smaller lake further north, which at some seasons of the year at least was in water contact with the, with the Gulf of Suez. And there's nothing about this alleged amazing discovery that in many ways needs to take the faith in the Bible or the truth of it. And other places on this route, two or three have been identified and many others not. And it is unlikely that they will be because the terrain is sandy and the, uh, the camps that the Israelites camped in on the way out of Egypt, they didn't build foundations of rocks or bricks in the soil, they just camped and moved on again. This doesn't leave a permanent trace in the soil. So I believe there's Forty-two places mentioned in the book of Numbers between Egypt and Jericho, and only twelve of these can be positively identified today. That's just the immediate points to know they know exactly where they were. Now, the date of the Exodus, this is a really thorny problem, and uh, there have been many opinions expressed on it. However, the, uh, most of them can come down to two types of beliefs. 
known as the early and the late dating. And this affects not merely the Exodus. If it were only the date of the Exodus, this wouldn't perhaps be so terribly important, but it's the king ten in the whole system of Old Testament chronology. And uh, how you date the Exodus depends uh, determines how you date everything before that as far back as Abraham at least. And everything after that down about to a thousand a thousand BC, the time of King David. So this is of crucial importance. Not that in itself it would matter what date the Exodus was, but it uh, does affect whether the Bible is a true record or not. And uh, if it isn't, then you can't believe it. What it states is truthful, then its uh, God-given character has been uh, has been destroyed or damaged. You see. Now, the two dates that are given, under says 1441 B.C. is the early dating for the Exodus and the late dating 1290. These differ, therefore, by about 150 years. Now, I should tell you the latest research by believing scholars has upped it from 1441 to 1447. 1447 for the Exodus and 1407 for the fall of Jericho. This is found in the latest conservative researches that believe in the Bible on this. However, uh, I think having mentioned that, we'll just forget it for the rest of this course and not not try to burden you with that. You should realize that under himself says give or take about 10 years when he deals with it. 1447, and 40 years later, they entered Canaan under Joshua, 1407. Now, Unger's book was written before the latest research was done on this. I have brought a thing here, and I'm not trying to look at it much, maybe, but there's Young's article that is across the Red Sea. Here's a learned article by John Ray, at that time of Moody Bible Institute, 1960, Princeton professor at Trinity Theological Seminary near Chicago, Deerfield, Illinois, strongly defending the early date of the Exodus with pages and pages and pages of, of scholarly references and bibliography. So this is held by some respectable people. It isn't only held by cranks like myself. Um, <laughs> uh, John Ray, he's, he's a real scholar. Anyway, uh, this is based upon a text in First Kings. See, the first book of Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Zip, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now this uh, identifies three things. The 480th year after the Exodus, the fourth year of Solomon's reign and the beginning of the construction of the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem all happened in the same year according to this verse alright now then this hinges on when did Solomon begin this is in the fourth year of his reign when do you put the beginning of the reign of Solomon and um, Hunger says 965 this also has been raised by some scholars to 971, but let that go, 965. Um, this would be the beginning of his reign, and if you uh, take the fourth year, that would be 961 B.C. You add 961 and 
480 that this verse mentions, and you get 1441 for the date of the Exodus. And those who question or deny this are forced to say that this 480 is not correct. That is, you cannot hold the late chronology and claim that 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1 is, is correct. Some of them simply say this is a late tradition and unreliable. If you believe in the Bible as the word of God, you can't start talking like that. Others say 480 is not meant to be a precise figure. This is um, uh, 40 times 12. 480. 12, 12 uh, 40s and the 40s uh, is, a, is a round number and approximate period. It doesn't read like this, though. If you read the verse, 480th year after the children of Israel would come out of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. It looks like it sounds like he's trying to give a specific year in the way of this book. Now, uh, Unger and those who agree with him hold that the Exodus took place in the 1440s, B.C. Dr. William Foxwell Albright um, died recently of Johns Hopkins University and of the University of Pennsylvania at one time. Dean of American Biblical Archaeologists, all right, but he held the late dating. And Dr. Nelson Glick, that wrote that book, The River Jordan, over there, he holds the late dating. But they hold this not because they claim the Bible teaches it, and certainly not because they think it fits in best with the data in the Bible, but because of archaeological data. Now, if something has to give, what are, you going to, what are you going to bend? You have to bend something, what are you going to bend? Are you going to um, take the Bible as your standard and adjust the findings of archaeology, which after all are fluid and still changing, to that? Or are you going to take the findings of archaeology as a given and hold them as an absolute and then adjust your interpretation of the Bible to that? You see, this depends on your basic um, philosophy of religion and your basic viewpoint. Uh, what, are your, what are your assumptions? Would you approach a thing like this about the Bible, for example, and its nature and its, its reliability, its uh, inspiration, God-given character? Now, all Dr. Nelson Gluck is a liberal, even among Jews. He isn't even Christian. Albright, uh, not nearly so radical as many secular scholars, but he's the first one to pronounce the Dead Sea Scrolls genuine. Albright, however, was also a liberal. Certainly did not believe in the verbal inspiration and infallibility of the Bible. That, that is, uh, he, it wouldn't keep him awake at night for ten minutes to believe if there was a contradiction in the Bible. This kind of thing didn't bother him. So uh, this verse in First Kings, he would say to that, so what? Now, you and I can't say that, not if you have the attitude toward the Bible that I think you have. You can't, you can't talk like that. So this becomes determinative of the whole thing. Now, Unger gives the evidence, pro and con, on the early dating of the Exodus. If we're a little behind schedule here, why I don't think it matters too much. This is as important as anything we'll come up with. He gives three... Uh, lines of evidence, and the details of this I think you can get yourself. Contemporary Egyptian history permits the 1441 date. Contemporary events in Palestine 
commit the 1441 date, and archaeological evidence from Jericho commits the 1441 date. Now, we come up with Jericho later, but I will have to tell you, this is a challenge. Uh, Jericho was uh, dug up in the 1920s by uh, an Englishman, Dr. John Garstang, a Bible believer, incidentally. And he claimed to have found the actual ashes of the fire when Joshua destroyed the city. And by pottery above and below, he dated it 1401 B.C. or 1400 approximately B.C. This seemed to be a very striking confirmation of the biblical account and the whole scheme and structure of early Bible chronology. More recently, a British lady archaeologist, Miss Kathleen Kenyon, of equal technical qualifications with Dr. Garstang, but she is a liberal in belief and not a fundamentalist or believer in the infallibility of the Bible, has redubbed the ruins of Jericho, and she says Garstang was all wet. That is, he was mistaken in his conclusion. What Garstang found, all the artifacts and everything, are housed in a museum in Palestine, all nicely tagged and labeled in showcases. You can see them if you go there. He doesn't deny he found these things, but claims that he misinterpreted them, and that the Jericho of Joshua's day, that was uh, where Joshua, you know, is saying, is at the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came coming down, that this had been eroded away by the elements and the weather, uh, and nothing was left of it, and that what uh, Garstang found was an older civilization from uh, before Joshua's time, hundreds of years before, maybe 500 years before, and therefore uh, there's a question mark after all his findings. Now, I should say about this, here's Garstang versus um, Kenyon. What do common folks like us do when the experts don't agree? Well, I can tell you this at least. This isn't finished yet. It's unlikely that anything new will be found at Jericho. They've sifted that through a fine sieve about all the times they can. It's unlikely that anything new will be turned up there. But the interpretation of this may be changed and tied in differently with things from other places. And not all scholars by any means are convinced that Miss Kenyon is right and Garstang was wrong. There are still some who hold with Garstang, and there are others who hold that the entire matter is debatable and unsettled, and the last word hasn't been said on it yet. So if you were thinking of becoming an atheist because Miss Kenyon has disproved Dr. Garstang, why, uh, cool it. <laughs> and wait and see. Now, uh, these are three... Uh, lines of evidence, and um, later he takes up um, the um, objections that are raised against this. And uh, we have just time maybe to um, take a, a little look at this, 254. There are four objections that are raised against the early date of the Exodus. The first, that Exodus 111 speaks of the store city of Ramses. And that this requires a late date. This man Ramses lived later in the time of Moses. And Unger answers this, as you will recall, by saying that this guy Ramses was a notorious crook. And it was one of his hobbies to claim credit for the uh, mighty works of his predecessors. 
and all the temples that had been built by Hatshepsut and other people before his time, he plastered them over to obliterate the names of the people that really did it and put his name up instead. And that uh, it is very probable that this city of Ramses that the Israelites are said to have helped to build existed before this King Ramses, but that he claimed credit for it and changed the name of it, and so you have the name Ramses in, in Exodus 111. Uh, these um, Egyptian kings were not um, victims of a, uh, let's say, puritanical uh, conscience, and it didn't bother them to tell some fibs like this uh, for the historical record from time to time. That's one thing. Uh, another argument, it is unlikely that Israel would have entered Egypt before the Hyksos period. This is um, purely speculative. What is likely or unlikely uh, cannot be determined. You can't prove a thing by what you think is likely or unlikely. A third argument, uh, the identification of the Israelites under Joshua with the Habiru of the Amarna letters is unlikely. Now this is... Um, very greatly disputed. Were the Habiru the same as the Hebrews, or were they not? Or were they a much larger class, and the Hebrews just one, or the Israelites just one little uh, division of that? Is Habiru uh, an ethnic name like uh, French or Germans, or is it a name of a class of people? It uh, said to mean wanderers, something like that. This is very much up in the air, and it certainly is altogether too vague to overthrow the, the truth of a specific statement of the Bible like First Kings chapter 6 verse 1. And the fourth, uh, the, the third argument, uh, the fourth argument, alleged archaeological evidence. This is from Dr. Nelson Glick. He developed the technique of surface archaeology. Uh, things work up to the surface from underneath and he would pick up these little bits of broken pottery that never go to, they never decay or anything they last as long as there is a world and uh, from these he would dig his uh, let's say evidence some conclusions and he went at this uh, very systematically it's quite a quite a study of course but he claims that <clears throat> there were no kingdoms of Ammon, Moab and Edom in the time of Moses the Israelites are said to have faced these three kingdoms, and uh, Balak, king of Moab, remember, got Balaam, the soothsayer, to curse Israel, and so forth. Well, uh, Dr. Glick says, there was no kingdom of Ammon, there was no kingdom of Moab, there was no kingdom of Edom in the time of Moses. If you hold the early chronology, therefore it must be the late chronology. Unger answers this by saying, and there's increasing evidence on this, he claims that the place was unoccupied for a hundred years. They haven't found um, artifacts to show that that area east of the Jordan was occupied in that, that period of a hundred years. Now they're finding they found the ruins of a temple in a place where he said there was no kingdom. And some things have been found. And secondly, this whole method of surface archaeology is challenged and is dubious unless it is supported by other things. And plenty of uh, very well-qualified archaeologists say uh, you can't just go by surface finds. And therefore they challenge Dr. Glick's method. So you see, this is not an open and shut case like some people have tried to claim. All right, have a nice weekend. See you